To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a nature show host. In the native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got GEICO, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But like a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. GEICO will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. GEICO. Great service. Without all the drama. Hey, welcome to Blue Wire. After you finish listening to this awesome Blue Wire podcast, make sure you check out the other pods in our Blue Wire family. Okay, I know, you're probably wondering, how do I do that? Well, it's simple. Go to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and search Blue Wire. Ta-da! They will all be there, so have fun listening. Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ, a Chicago Bulls podcast for the Blue Wire Sports Podcasting Network. Thank you for joining me again this week as we take you through the latest news, analysis and game action surrounding our Chicago Bulls. And apologies in advance if my voice sounds a little bit funny this week, not that it ever sounds great, but um, I'm a little under the weather so if I sound somewhat off you know why, but Given that, I'm glad this isn't a solo show like last week. So if you haven't listened to last week's show yet, I go back and listen to it and, and listen to me give my answers to your mailbag questions on the debut episode of Bulls HQ for Blue Wire. But as for this week, I'm not alone, thankfully, and I need this man on board because, like I said, my voice is uh, is a bit croaky this week. But I've brought in my old friend Morton Jensen's to talk Bulls and plenty more with me. Morton, how are you, mate? Hey, Mark, I'm doing well, and I, I want to ask you the same, but I can hear in your voice that uh, you're not doing that well. Look, I, I won't complain too much, but um, I, I've, I'm a bit of a road dog, Mort, so um, I've got plenty of spirit <laughs> and soul to get through this podcast, but um, I'm okay. But I've uh, been, been a little while since we talked. How's, how's things been? Things have been going well. How about you? Good, mate. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward, or I'm counting down the days until the end of the season, to be honest with you. Yep. We're only about two weeks left, and... Um, it's going to be an interesting week coming up for the Bulls because it's probably going to be an interesting two weeks because the next two weeks are probably going to define what the draft order will be. I want to talk a little bit later about that a little bit later on, but um, I wanted to start off the top here with Lowry Markinen being ruled mm. out for the season, which is, I guess, makes complete sense. I had been calling for Lowry Markinen to be shelved given that there was really nothing to play for, but I didn't necessarily want it to, to, to go down this way given the potential health scare we're seeing with Lowry Markkinen. Right. So for those unaware, Lowry Markkinen has been ruled out for the remainder of the season due to uh, suffering extreme fatigue. He was complaining of an elevated heart rate and as such had to stay overnight in Toronto the other week, or last week I should say, um, after the Bulls lost to the Raptors and he basically had to go through a series of health checks and they all came back fine, which was pleasing, but he will be wearing a heart monitor for the Bulls doctors to sort of just monitor his situation and to uh, to see how he's progressing. But anytime you've combined a situation where a player is not feeling well, they're feeling exhausted, and they're complaining of an elevated heart, it, uh, an elevated heart rate, it's it's kind of scary. 
Yeah, it is. I actually had to wear one of them um, myself when I oh, was really? a bit. Yeah, when I was a bit younger, um, I was going through some health stuff as well. And it, thankfully, it's not something that bothers the body too much, but you're constantly aware of it. And I was told by my doctor back in the day that because you're wearing that apparatus, <laughs> your anxiety level might actually go up, which could affect the results. Yeah. So you have to basically just forget about it the best mm-hmm. you can. Uh, yep. But it's it's absolutely scary. It's it's a a serious condition. And he, here's the the worst case scenario. That is, they discover some sort of you know defect with with his you know maybe his heart rhythm or or something that could potentially you know, compromise his NBA career. Let's hope that's obviously not the case uh, because that would be horrific for for him. Um, you know, drastically. So you know. Uh, knock on wood, all is good and all is fine. But yeah, that was definitely a, a scary way to end the season. Uh, you would almost prefer it was like, you know, if it was a it was a hand or a knee or something else, right? Yeah, I mean that's why it's scary because it's it's heart related. So hopefully it's just a minor thing that you know can be clear, uh, quickly corrected, or maybe it's something that doesn't rear its head again. But to your point, hopefully anything to do with the heart is somewhat scary. So. Let's hope it's not anything significant for marketing, and that for whatever reason, it's just a, a one-time thing. Because yeah, we don't we don't need that as Bulls fans, but more importantly, Larry Marketing doesn't need that for his right. career. So hopefully, fingers crossed, he's healthy and and he's proven that's proven uh, so over the coming weeks. But but thinking more holistically, what do you make of Larry Marketing this season and his second season? Do you how would you rate it? I guess. Oh uh, well. I, I didn't really have a grade prepared, but it's high, like an A minus or something like that. It, it, he had a very good second year. I think part of his stat line was really compromised by the fact that he missed so much time early on, and it was his shooting elbow that was hurt initially. Uh, I, I've been very vocal about this for months. When I followed him last summer during you know his Finland games, it was very apparent to me that he looked a lot better because we had the year prior to that in in with the Eurobasket to compare him to, you know, in international competition. His comfort level was obviously, you know, so much higher this time around, but his skill set and the way that he would use his body and understand, you know, how far can I go with this? Where can I go, you know, with my limitations or my, you know, my my athletic ability? Where can where can I be the most effective? Like he just played so much better the second time around. And it was so obvious to me that he was going to take a a pretty significant leap. And then the damn elbow injury happened. And you could just see when he came back, you know, he was gunning, but he was, he was once in a while, like touching that elbow, you know, running back down the court. Like it was in his head a lot. And I think it took at least a month, maybe a little bit more before he really started getting comfortable. So I would... When I'm looking at his numbers, and I, I realize there's more to the game than just numbers, but I'm looking at those, I'm seeing, you know, a very nice stat line, but I'm also seeing one that could have been, yeah, significantly better had he not been hurt initially. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And to to to, to add to that, basically his numbers from his rookie season to his sophomore season didn't really improve. Um, when you look at it on a per 100 possessions basis, they pretty much remained stagnant and it was actually eerily similar sometimes. His field goal percentage was basically as is. His three-point three percentage didn't didn't really move. His true shooting percentage barely moved. All his, his, his basic numbers that were essentially the same. So if you're looking at it purely from a numbers point of view, you could easily make the case that 
Larry Markin didn't improve from his rookie season to his sophomore season. But to your point, we need a little bit more context to that. And the context is mm. that his season was basically bookend with some with some injuries. The Albert injury to start the season where he missed two months and obviously the issue that he's going through now. So I, I don't think it's correct to say Larry didn't necessarily improve just by looking at the numbers because I think we saw him do things this season that we hadn't seen him do before. And I think that improvement in skill set was very clear. And to your point, if he hadn't had those sort of injury setbacks at the start and end of seasons, then his numbers are looking a lot healthier. So I was quite positive about what we saw from Larry, particularly obviously what we saw in February. I think that was... We got a glimpse of what his potential can be, and you know, fingers crossed that Larry is healthy moving forward. But um, I, I, I can't sit here and say that I wasn't impressed from what we saw from Larry in year two. Right? No, I, th- I think anyone saying otherwise would be lying to themselves because he, he, you know, visually looked better. He, you, when you dig into some of the advanced metrics, you can also see he took a significant step up. Like he, he's a guy who actually increased his usage rate from under twenty two to plus twenty five. And he did so while only adding 0.6 percentage point to his turnover percentage. That's pretty significant. Usually when your usage rate you know, increases significantly, so does the turnover rate. His really didn't. Um, and you know, he got better as a rebounder. He got better as a passer. He got more into the line. I think he rounded out his game a lot more. And this is only the beginning. If we just assume that, and let's, let's hope that's the case, that he's healthy from here on out. And he'll be playing, you know, at least 75 games next year. I would not be surprised one iota if he's a 2010 player and is a significantly better passer and his percentages are going to come up. Wouldn't surprise me at all. No, I, I totally agree. And I think the biggest thing that we learned about Larry Markin is that he is ultimately the barometer of success for this team. So when Larry was playing damn good basketball, his, the Bulls actually functioned like a, an actual NBA team. They played 500 basketball and looked like a proper NBA team. But when he was down, when he was hurt, when he was sort of coming back in those first two months and obviously in that last month as well, when Larry was sort of struggling, when he was down, the Bulls were down too. So if nothing else, he is clearly established for everyone to see that he is the man for this Bulls team, how he goes as will the Bulls. So I think that is a positive too. Now, obviously, you can look at that. If you don't have a, a positive view of Larry Markman, you can probably point to that end. And maybe you look at it from a negative angle, but but to me, for for a former number seven pick in his second season to establish that basically as he goes, so does the team. I think that that can be viewed as a positive as well. So here's to hoping Larry gets healthy over the off season and comes back a better player next season. But in other news, the Bulls have signed Walter Lemon Jr. So for those who are unaware, Lemon Jr. is a point guard for the G League affiliate, and the uh, the Windy City Bulls season is currently over. So. In need of our, uh, some healthy bodies here, Mort, the Bulls basically have no one on the roster at the moment, given all the injuries <laughs> they are fielding. They've actually signed Walter Lemon Jr. for the remainder of the season here. So pretty good news for Lemon Jr. And if we've um, been reading some of the quotes from Lemon Jr., he's a Chicago-based kid. He's thrilled to be part of this team, even if it is only for two weeks. But um, I'm happy to see the Bulls make this signing. Uh, it's a, it's probably a, it's one that they needed to make given that they have no bodies on the roster. They can barely field the uh, a minimum amount of players to actually go around. But it's actually a bit of a, a heartwarming story too. Yeah, absolutely, it is. Uh, I mean, look, when you have young kids, or or well, he's not a kid. He's what twenty five, twenty six. I mean, he is, but I mean, the Bulls have got. Yeah, we consider the Bulls a young team, and they've got a, a roster full of twenty five and twenty six year olds. So I'm just happy for him. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's that's my point. You, you, whenever someone you know gets an NBA opportunity, that's always heartwarming, even if it's the end of the season. We saw Andre Ingram in L.A., uh, and, and the fan support there was obviously fantastic last year. And again, this year when he got uh, signed uh, or at least called up, they didn't renew his 10 day. But yeah, I mean, Lemon Jr. gets a chance and, and we'll see. He hasn't been active yet as far as I'm concerned. I don't, I don't remember him playing last time. I didn't even see the last Bulls game. He wasn't active by then, right? He's, he was signed in between games. Yeah, I don't believe he's, 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 he hasn't made his debut yet. I think it will be tonight. So I, I should tonight, mention that, yeah. that we're actually recording this during the Bulls or just before the Bulls playing Toronto. So um, that's, how, that's how committed we are to this Bulls team. We, we're not, we don't even give a shit they're actually playing. but And, and rightly so, because tonight against the Raptors, they're actually starting Archie Diakono, Shaq Harrison, Wayne Seldon, Samson at power forward. He's definitely not a power forward, but they need someone to play power forward. And Robert Lopez. So that's the starting five. There's not much behind that bench unit or that starting unit on the bench. So no wonder they need to bring in Walter Lemon Jr., but he will presumably make his debut tonight. So many point guards for the Bulls this season overall. Yes. I mean, yes. when you look at it, Tyler Eulis, Cameron Payne, Shaq Harrison, I mean, Ryan Archidiakono, who's been terrific. It's, yeah, so many guys. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how many they've cycled through, but how many haven't necessarily stuck. So I don't know if Lemon Jr. here is going to get enough time to really showcase what he can do, particularly playing in, you know, the, the, the right at the end of the season here where nothing really matters for anyone, I guess. Uh, I don't think the Raptors will be playing their hardest. Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard's not playing tonight. So there's nothing really to be gained for anyone in the remaining two weeks of the season of actual you know, positive production, if we put it that way. So <laughs> I don't know if he's going to have a chance to really prove himself. But like I said, he's a Chicago kid getting a chance to live out his dream playing for the Bulls. So I can't knock him for that. And I really do hope he goes well. So we'll see how he goes tonight in his Bulls debut. He'll definitely be getting minutes. So hopefully Jim Boylan gives him, you know, 15 or 20 minutes or so. But moving on from Walt Lemon Jr., a news coming through today, actually. I wanted to talk about this too, Morton. It was about Fred yep. Hoiberg um, landing a job in, in college, not in the NBA like he wanted to, but he's actually picked up the Nebraska job, which was sort of rumored or circulated last week or the week before, but that has been confirmed today. Fred Hoiberg has signed a seven-year deal with the Nebraska team. They will pay him in the vicinity of $25 to $28 million, depending on which report you read. So pretty damn good here for Hoiberg to be landing another huge contract. He had a five-year, $25 million deal for the Bulls. He's now got a seven-year and at least a $25 million um, job from the Nebraska team. So over the last 10 years, or for the next 12 years, I should say, Hoiberg's basically racked up $50 million. So not too bad from Fred here. No, I mean, in co in coaching money, that's fine. That is perfectly fine. And honestly, good for Fred. I mean, I know that he may not have been a, a proper NBA coach, but at the same time, I think it's also fair to say that he never got a chance to really prove what he could do. I mean, this is the guy who constantly said, you know, I want to run, I pace and space. And then he was given, you know, a lot of players who just couldn't do that. And this year he really got screwed over by being fired, you know, right before Laurie really came back. And yeah, it, it, it was just a dumb situation. So I'm really happy for Fred that he's going to get that money and he's going to be doing what he loves to do, which is coaching. And who knows, maybe in the middle of that Nebraska job, if he does really well and you know the team makes it far, an NBA team will come calling. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I'll always stand for Fred Hoiberg. I, I had a soft spot for him for some of those reasons you alluded to. The fact that 
I thought he was put in a pretty precarious position given that he was basically sold as being what Tom Thibodeau wasn't and was sold as being the answer, which was kind of unfair for him. And he was just always put in a tough situation. I don't blame Fred for that. I blame the Bulls management for that. I don't think they necessarily right. supported him in the way they needed to. And, and that's not to justify Fred uh, completely because I think there were moments where he was doing a pretty bad job. But I don't know. I'll always have a, a soft spot for Hoiberg. I'll always stand for Hoiberg. So I'm happy to see him land on his feet here and, and get a gig that he sort of sounds like, at least in his press release, that he really wanted. He's got roots and ties to Nebraska. So it makes sense for Hoiberg to go back to that college level and to to make bank and be the mayor once again. So I'm happy for Fred Hoiberg. But uh, I, I guess accompanying this news today is uh, Casey Johnson basically put out a piece, one, putting out the news of Hoiberg, but also within that piece, alluding to the fact that Hoiberg getting the Nebraska job basically doesn't change the Bulls' position on Jim Boylan, which I guess right. you would expect him to say, or you would expect also to tell Casey Johnson. They're not going to obviously voice anything differently this time of the season, but I also wouldn't. I would also say that that John Paxson particularly has been pretty vocal in his stance of supporting Jim Boylan. So I don't think we should read into Fred Hoiberg landing the Nebraska job as a bit of an exit here for Jim Boylan and the Bulls. So because Fred Hoiberg has landed this deal with a college team with Nebraska, his his first season with Nebraska, that the, the amount of let's say let's call it three and a half million dollars that he will make next season, that will be offset against the five million dollars that the Bulls owed him. So the Bulls will only be on the hook for $1.5 million roughly for Hoiberg next season and about $1 million for Jim Boylan next season. So they don't, they won't be paying too much for their coaching search or for their coaching uh, position next season, which would lead, I guess, some to assume that they will do a bit of a coaching search. But based on the narrative going around and, and all the reports that we have, it doesn't appear that the Bulls will be moving on from Jim Boylan next season. You know what would be really, really funny to me? If Nebraska and Fred Hoiberg had kind of agreed that he would play for minimum wage in the first <laughs> year, just so he could get all his money and then go forward with max pay, that would have been tremendous. That would have been the greatest troll job ever, especially well, I, against the Bulls. It's funny you say that because I think I think within KC's article, I think they there was a clause within the contract that it was forced that he couldn't backload his deal. So um, I don't know if that was intervened by the Bulls or if they asked for that to be in there or or if that was Hoiberg making the call or the school. I don't know, but um, I, th- I think the Bulls were happy to, to see that clause being added yeah. into the contract <laughs> to avoid that situation. So, uh, and your question was that about Boylan? I simply forgot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Boylan's pretty forgettable, so I don't blame you. But yeah, yeah my question was pretty much... Um, just around Boylan and the fact that we shouldn't be reading into this as is Hoiberg oh, yeah, yeah. landing the job as some sort of exit here for Jim Boylan no. or, or, or the writing on the wall that the Bulls will be moving on from Boylan now that someone else is paying the majority of Hoiberg's contract for next season. Right. So so here's the thing. We've been told, you know, everyone here has been told that Jim is going to be back. You know, the team was behind him from day one. They're, they're kind of invested in him, and it seems like he is the de facto coach to come back. I still think it's kind of up in the air. I think they're saying all the right things right now. But if a coach becomes available this summer that the Bulls like, like, you know, really, really like, like a Luke Walton type or whatever, then I think they will at least sit down and have a meeting and go, you know what, what should we do? If Do we stick with the guy that we've been in the media talking up for the past couple of months, or do we go with the the brand name coach who we believe is better. And I have to assume that they would go with the latter 
but it's the Bulls, so you don't really know for sure. But uh, if if someone like Luke Walton becomes available, I would I wouldn't hesitate uh, calling him in for a meeting and see what's happening. No, I mean I think most Bulls fans would be aligned with that view that you know they don't necessarily want to see Boylan come back. But I don't know. Like I said before, I don't. I, there's there's no reason to expect them not to be. Uh, I, I guess throwing their support around Jim Boylan at this point. But uh, I mean John Paxson, he's pretty easy to read. He's very direct, and when he likes you, he makes that known. And when he's yeah. trying to be coy about it, he he sort of ums and ahs. If we think about you know after Fred Hoiberg's first or second season, I don't remember which one it was, but he was asked about you know what he liked about Fred Hoiberg, and he didn't really mention too much. Um, and he he basically alluded that Fred had to grow, and he's done the same thing now with Chris Dunn, where. He's basically hasn't said too much positive about Chris Dunn, and the only thing he's really said is that they're going to give him the rest of the season to see how things play out. So when John Paxson speaks, he's uh, he's honest to a fault, and even when he's trying to be coy, you can sort of see or read into what he's actually trying to say or what he actually thinks. And if we use that logic or that premise as a basis going forward, then he has spoken really highly about Jim Boylan, so I have no reasons to believe that Boylan won't be back next season, even though we can say that the Bulls won't, they won't, you know, come out and say, oh yeah, well, Jim Boylan's not going to be coming back next season or that we'll be doing a coaching review or anything of that nature. I, I, I'm i getting the the view from them that Boylan will be back. So, yeah, you know, that that's the view that I've got. I could be completely wrong. Maybe someone becomes available that they weren't necessarily thinking. I mentioned Terry Stotts last week on, on Bulls HQ. Like if he became an option, that would be silly not to pursue him. So maybe things change. It's a fluid situation, but based on the information we have on deck right now, I think Boylan will be back next season. But if he is back, I actually have a problem with the Bulls paying Boylan with what they do. I've made it very clear that I'm not a Jim Boylan fan, but if they do bring him back and they do not renegotiate his term of his final year, which is $1.6 million next season, only $1 million of that is guaranteed, but if they bring him back for that amount, and Fred Hoiberg is earning $3.5 million with Nebraska, I think that is completely embarrassing by the Bulls to be paying the head coach so much less than a college coach. This is one of the biggest markets in the NBA. And to be paying a in coach... In sports. In sports. To be paying your head coach only $1.6 million, even if I think he's not a good coach, to only be paying him that amount of money, I think that's highly embarrassing. Yep. So... If they do bring Boylan back, I do hope they actually give him a bit of a bump to actually, if nothing else, just from a, a, a PR standpoint, just just play the PR game right. and just at least at least make it known that you actually pay your coaches for a position that they should be paid for, an amount that they should actually earn. You don't want coaches in the NBA being paid less than the guys in college. So I don't know. That's just my rant on that. I'm actually somewhat supportive on Boylan in some senses. Well, I like the fact that you're sticking up for him from a financial perspective. I think we all should, really. Yes, I, I agree with you all the way. $1.6 million for an NBA coach in 2019. That's just, that's appalling. It would be so on brand of the Bulls to look at this as, oh, this is great value. Let's go with it. Uh, because as we all know, the, there is a significant level of interest in, in the finances with this team, <laughs> um, to, to put it mildly. Yes, I think they should renegotiate. And if they're only, you know, interested in having him like for next year in terms of guaranteed money, 
double it at the very least. I yeah. mean, Fred Hoiberg got what five million yeah, exactly. a year right off the bat. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's it's utterly ridiculous. The Chicago Bulls is one of the most well-known brands in the entire world. Like if you have a Bulls cap on and you go to the Philippines, and I know this because I've tried this exact example. Like they will know, regardless of where you're in the jungle in some Philippine island. They will know. Oh, Chicago Bulls. Yes, sir. I mean, (laughs) it is one of the most recognizable brands ever. So paying your head coach 1.6 million. Yeah, that's that's a sham. Well, I mean, people are listening to a podcast by an Australian who's got a Danish guest on. So the Bulls are a global (laughs) brand. I mean, that that doesn't need to be stressed more. I mean, that's just a fact. So if they do bring Boylan back, which I don't want to happen, but if they do, pony up and at least pay the man $3 million, something that's replicable right. of an actual uh, an actual minimum wage that you would expect for a coach, or mm. not a minimum wage, but a, a somewhat serviceable wage. Because if you're going to be serious about it, let's be serious about it. Pay him an amount that he actually deserves. So uh, that's my rant. Don't ever say that I don't support Jim Boylan, folks. I'm here trying to get the men more money, so... In fact, I'm actually a big Boylan fan. I think that's what we've established, if nothing else. (laughs) But that's pretty much all the Bulls news that I wanted to talk about there. I want to talk the tournament now. But before we do that, Morton, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor. All right, guys, we've got an announcement to make. Blue Wire is teaming up with Harry's to make sure our listeners are shaving comfortably. Go to harrys.com forward slash Blue Wire to save $10 on a value trial set, which includes a five-blade razor with lubricating strip and trimmer blade, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. You get all that for just $3 shipped right to your door. Enough with the cheap razors, everybody. It's totally worth trying Harry's. Harry's has fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. So join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com forward slash blue wire. All of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they will give you a full refund. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com forward slash blue wire to redeem your razor for $3. All right, now moving on from that, let's talk tournament, Mort. We're, in, we're into the Elite Eight phase. So as, as I mentioned before, we're actually recording this just before the Bulls play the Raptors later tonight. But the, the Elite Eight has actually kicked off. And as we were recording, Texas Tech and Gonzaga are playing right now. And currently at this point, Texas Tech is up by two points. So we're, we're actually watching this as we're no, recording. No, they're going to hit a three in a moment. They're up five. Oh, geez, you, your, your stream's going faster than mine. So I'm, I'm yeah. a little delayed here, but... um. Basically, we're, we're, we're recording as Texas Tech and Gonzaga are going around. And, and to be fair, I've actually been watching more college basketball right now than, than the Bulls, which look, I read the right. starting lineup for this Bulls-Raptors team, uh, Bulls-Raptors <laughs> game a little bit earlier on. So, you know, forgive me. That's why me. you got sick, man. Probably, yeah. To watching too much Bulls basketball. It'll, it'll, it's, not, it's not good for your health. But I've been watching more March Madness than I have been Bulls basketball, and rightly so. And, I, and I'm tipping a lot of people listening to this I've been doing the same thing, so it only made sense to be talking prospects, to be talking tournaments. So tell me what you've seen over the last sort of week or two in terms of watching March Madness. If you're anything like me, you've probably been focusing more on the prospects that make more sense for the Bulls than some random shitty teams that we don't care about. But um, tell me what you've thought about the tournament, particularly in the Sweet 16 and, and moving into the Elite Eight here. 
Well, I, I've only been looking at the NBA prospects. So, you know, Jared Culver, John Moran, Zion Williamson, RJ Barrett, uh, Brandon Clark. So so let's start with two of the guys who are on the court right now. Brandon Clark from Gonzaga and Jared Culver from Texas Tech. Brandon Clark is a monster. My goodness, what a pogo stick. I mean, he can jump out of the gym He's the motor on him is incredible. You know, he sort of reminds me, at least the motor does, reminds me a little bit of Joakim. Like he just never stops. He's always around the basket. He's always doing stuff. He he just never stands still. I love that about him because it just throws the entire defense off. And and when he's on defense, you know, his activity level just frustrates the hell out of his opponent. So there's this Joakim Noah element to him. But... He's got his motor and energy level backed up by a very sound fundamental game. Joakim did have that as well in terms of being able to dribble and pass and rebound the ball, but he wasn't a natural shot maker. Brandon Clark is kind of becoming that, not necessarily as a jump shooter, although his form has really improved over the last year. But his he's activity level around the rim is exquisite. So I'm really excited to see what he can become on the next level. And switching gears, going over to the other side with Jared Culver, I mean, look, he's become a Bulls fan favorite for, you know, the draft pick that the Bulls are going to end up with. And I get why. He's an outstanding, long athlete, plays the two, three, but can probably swing up to the four, depending on how he tests out the height-wise. There's a lot of, you know, there's a rumor going on that he's not the 6'5", as he's listed, that he's closer to 6'8". And by just by looking at him, uh, throughout several games, it, I would be very, very surprised if he, uh, you know, is listed at six five or six six. Like if he tests out in that range, I think he's significantly taller, six seven, six eight. Uh, so maybe like a Jimmy Butler type of size in terms of height, and then with a longer wingspan. He's one of those athletes, rare athletes, I should say, that could probably end up playing the two, the three, and the four in the NBA. So a really switchable wing. Uh, not the most natural shot maker, especially from uh, from distance, but he can make shots. He can get into the paint. He's very long, has long strides, great rebounder as well on the glass, playmaker. He He's, you know, a kind of jack of all trades, master of none, but he's so young that he can actually achieve being a master of at least a couple of things. So I'm really high on him as well. Um, yeah, I don't know what, what your thoughts about are about those two guys. I mean, I really like Brandon Clark to the point where I'm sort of tossing up whether I should have him fourth on my board. But um, I think it comes down to a situation where I may have him fourth on my board, but maybe not necessarily having a going fourth to the Bulls, assuming the Bulls are at four, because I, I don't necessarily think they need someone like Brandon Clark. And I don't know if I'd be thrilled with the Bulls using the fourth pick on someone like Brandon Clark, given that they have Larry Markin and Wendell Carter in the front court sort of set there for them for the next 10 years. So... It's an interesting situation, but I, you know, depending on who, who, what the draft order is, I could easily see the case being made for Brandon Clark being the fourth pick in the draft or something like that. Like if mm. if Minnesota were to jump up in the draft, let's say, you know, Brandon Clark is the exact type of, of the exact type of forward that you would want to pair Carl Anthony Towns with, or even Memphis. Yeah. A pairing of Jackson and Clark would actually put so much fear into opposing offenses in terms of how how good they are at switching and how good they are at reading defensively. So. I mean, there is a situation depending on who or how the draft order shakes out where you could easily have Brandon Clark going as high as three or four, I think, given given what he's been able to do and how he's been able to sort of transform his game here. I really like Brandon Clark, but 
Jared Culver, he, he's a guy that I'm sort of tossing up in my own head as to whether the Bulls should go Culver at two or, or Jamar out. Now, I'm obviously assuming in this case that the Bulls have the second pick, which may not be the case, but right. I, 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 I go back and forth as to what the right decision is at two. And I think I'm just come, coming back to the conclusion that obviously, ultimately, this is a guessing game. And I think depending, I think there's actually real arguments on both sides be it Morant or Culver, you can make for as to who is the best player available at pick two. I think I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, someone mounting a case for Morant at pick two as best player available is wrong because I think there are very real, very real arguments as to why he should be the second best player in this draft. But I think you can mount such a case for Jared Culver too. So I don't know about that one. That one's a tough one for me, but uh, personally, I'm probably leaning Culver at the moment, but ultimately, mm. as I said last week on the show, there's still so much data that we need on these guys. We'll learn more as the combine goes through, and I think at that point, that's probably when my mind will start to take a little bit more of a firm shape. I already have like a, a pretty solid uh, idea of, of what I'm looking at if I'm looking at Culver and, and Moran specifically for the Bulls, because the, the thing is, like we, we all know that Sion Williamson is you know, the, the can't miss pros, prospect and obviously one the, with the highest ceiling. Like he's going to be a future superstar and all that. Now, flipping past him, assuming that the Bulls just do not get him and they land two or three and Morand and, and Culver in the mix. So basically what you have to gauge is, does the the potential of John Morand, is that able to, to you know, materialize in Chicago when you have so many offensive players already present. Like, you can't move Zach Levine off the ball constantly. He needs to be on the ball. He's a rhythm player. He also needs to get to the rim. He needs to be able to draw fouls, all these type of stuff. Laurie Markin, and we've seen what happens when the offense kind of ignores him. He just goes into these lulls, which is, you know, not on him, honestly. I mean, how many times have we seen him pop out and be wide open for three with Chris Dunn or Zach Levine just ignoring him entirely? Um, so I, I think you need to give him certain plays. You need to allow him to, you know, grab the rebound and just go off the defensive board and, and see what happens. So I do question whether Morant would be a guy who would be able to realize all that potential. Because it, as far as I'm concerned, Morant is the, the guy in, you know, right next to Sion in this draft class who has the highest ceiling, you know, the second highest ceiling in the draft. But he just, he needs to have the most accurate surroundings uh, alongside him to actually make that a reality. You know, he needs a team that he can have that his is his entirely own, where he can run it from day one. He can take, you know, 18 shots a game if he wants. The ball is his. He has the ball in his hands like 80, 85% of the time. And I question whether that's the Bulls. On the other hand, with Culver, like I think he would fit in nicely. I wonder how, you know, the Bulls would fare with going to a more of a positionless offense or positionless lineup even because they're not really the most progressive team if you catch my drift like it's 2019 it's now they're kind of realizing oh we need wings like yeah that's that's been a thing for three years and like it took them a couple years to get on board with the three-pointer as well (laughs) like it always seems like they're at least two or three years behind so if if they seem uh so so if uh my pardon uh if Culver's available I wonder if they realize the potential there is in drafting him and playing him with Levine and Otto Porter in a kind of positionless backcourt. If they realize it, I think it could make a lot of sense to go 
Culver because you would store up the defense. You would get an additional playmaker, one who wouldn't demand a lot of shots, one who would fit seamlessly into the offense and be a switchable defender as well, who I really think could help out Laurie in particular. Um, so yeah, if I'm the Bulls, I would probably be leaning Culver, but I, I mean, no skin off my nose if they take Morand because obviously he would fit, you know, solve their, their point guard issues and he would fit into some capacity. The question is, with the drop-off in production because you land in Chicago if you're Morand, would that be enough or would it warrant him drafting him second compared to Culver, who, in my opinion, fits like a glove in terms of his skill set? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. When you're talking about Culver, that, as I sort of alluded to before, we're, we're recording this as we're watching Texas Tech be Gonzaga. And as you were sort of going on your, uh, your spiel there about Jarrett Culver and the things he can do, he actually picked up a steal on defense by switching on to uh, a defender, a bigger defender, picked up the steal, Basically led the transition break and then found a teammate there who got fouled at the at the rim there, which gave Texas Tech an opportunity at the free throw line. So he's a two-way player. To your point, the Bulls don't have enough wings. And I know a lot has been spoken about, you know, the Bulls being set at positions two and three, which you can sort of make that argument with Zach Levine being sort of being a fixture at shooting guard going forward based on how he's how good he was this season. And even Otto Porter too, whilst he didn't play too much for the Bulls. He is a guy that you could be comfortably slotting in at small forward. But to your point, you can play lineups where you have three, four wings on on the on the court at one time. And the Bulls don't have that depth behind Levine and Otto Porter, as we're seeing right now. Now, obviously, Denzel Valentine and Chandler Hutchinson are out engine too, which, which obviously removes even more of the Bulls' wing depth. But if you bring in Jarrett Culver, he goes straight past Chandler Hutchinson and Denzel Valentine in terms of oh, yeah. talent on the wing. So... To say that there isn't room or there isn't time for for someone like Jared Culver to be getting minutes in Chicago, that's just completely not true. He'll play himself into a role and he'll be getting 20 to 25 minutes straight away, even if he is a backup uh, backup option for the Bulls on the wing. So um, I think he, you know, there are clear fit concerns with Culver on this team. If you if you're talking fit purely from inserting a rookie into your starting lineup from opening night, I get that. So I get why Morant makes more sense to be that option for the Bulls at, at behind Zion, assuming they do have that number two pick. And, you know, slotting Morant at point guard makes a lot more sense than obviously trying to force feed Jarrett Culver into the starting lineup. That probably won't work from the opening night. But to say that Culver doesn't have a fit here or shouldn't be an option for the Bulls, I, I don't buy that at all. But I like I said, I think there's a, a reasonable case to be made for either or, but I don't know which way I'm leaning just for, just yet. But if nothing else, I've come to the, the conclusion that I definitely do not have RJ Barrett anywhere close to going to <laughs> um, anywhere close to going number two. So I think that's been made clear for me after watching Duke yesterday. So I, I don't know about about you, but uh, I mean that look, it's easy to hate on RJ Barrett, I, I guess. But and in that first half against Virginia Tech the other day or yesterday even, where Duke just narrowly escaped with a win. I don't know how they yeah. did it, but they got that win. I mean, that first half that we saw from RJ Barrett is exactly why I'd be fearful of ever having RJ Barrett on my team. So, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not I'm not high on RJ Barrett at all. Yeah, no, I agree with you. The thing about Barrett is this. If everyone, everything in his game um, is ironed out, and obviously that's that's a big task, but when you're in 18, 19, he's 19, right? 19 years old, 
you know, obviously you are going to improve. But if he irons out like you know his his shooting game and his aggressiveness, like knowing when to be aggressive, when to back off, and you know maybe just becomes a little bit more crisp of a defender, then a lot of those issues are solved. The thing is, he seems just hell bent on doing things his way. He seems hell bent, like when he's on the perimeter, and sometimes he'll have a wide open three, but he'll also have a lane sort of to the basket. And he's just hell-bent on taking that weird weird lane. And if a defender rotates over, no, no, he's he's still going to go up. Whereas, you know, sometimes you just want to scream, like, keep it simple, stupid. Like, just take the three. It's fine. It's it's what you need to do in the NBA level anyway, because that lane that may be open against, you know, Virginia Tech or whatever, or you know, might, should not be open in the NBA game, I should say, because defenders are quicker and will rotate and whatever, like a lot quicker. So, yeah. Um I just, I think he lacks some basketball IQ, which is a horrible, you know, it's a horrible moniker. The basketball IQ monitor is, 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 yeah, it's outdated, but you know what I mean, right? He's just, he seems not to be in his own skin as much. Like he seems to be doing all these kinds of weird things, whereas he could just take simpler um, decisions with and without the basketball. And you have to wonder, is that something that can be ironed out? Or is that something that's just instilled in him like Joel Green, who's, you know, came into the league as a chucker, went out of the league as a chucker, came back into the league as a chucker, but in an era where chucking was, you know, more acceptable, and now he has a role. Um, I'm just not sure what he is, and that scares me. Well, I mean, if, if RJ Barrett had the athleticism of a Jeff Green or a Gerald Green or any other bloody Green that's gone through the NBA, then maybe it's a, maybe it's a different proposition because I think that's one thing that's become clear that this guy isn't a super duper wing athlete. I mean, he, he's, that's not to say he's a bad athlete. I mean, he's very good in transition. That's probably the best, the most redeeming quality that he has right now that he's a great scorer in transition, but. I don't know how much that will transfer over, over to the NBA. It probably helps him now that he has an NBA re, a NBA ready body against competition that he's playing against often, which are you know going up against guys that don't have that NBA ready body. So will he be as effective in transition that he currently is now when going against NBA um, NBA athletes? I I don't know what the answer to that is, but I don't know. Barrett frust- frustrates me because you do see. You do see positives from him. I think it was in the first quarter yeah. yesterday where he made this amazing quarter-court pass into the lane. He just whipped it with his left hand, went through the entire defense and found one of his teammates at the rim there for the easy bucket. Those are the kinds of plays where you sort of sit there and go, okay, RJ Barrett actually has a lot of skill. But then he yeah. makes, you know, for every good little move he makes like that, there's probably five other moves that he has where you're just sitting there going... What, why Why did he do that? Well, he can't go right at all. He, he can't dribble at all to his right. He's very left-handed mm. predominant. He, he He's not, he, like I said, he's not a great athlete. So his separation isn't good in terms of creating separation generally. But the fact that he can only go one way, he, he makes himself very easy to be defended. Now, as you alluded to before, RJ is only 19 years old compared to Brandon Clark, who will be 23 once he suits up for his first NBA game. Maybe that four-year so that four-year age bracket's enough to sort of say, you know, I'm going to take a punt. Put let's put RJ in an NBA system. You get four more years out of him. Maybe you can sort of coach some of that stuff out of him. But at the same time, I don't know, man. I I just don't see it with RJ Barrett. I I think he can be a productive NBA player, but ultimately it's going to come down to him and what type of NBA player he wants to be. If he wants to be that sort of high usage lead guard, 
a James Harden type of player in the NBA. I think if that's what he wants to be and the team that drafts him tries to make him that, I don't think it's going to go very well at all. Right. I think, you know, the when you look at Barrett, I think the upside is a lesser athletic type of Tracy McGrady. Like McGrady was never, you know, a efficient three-point shooter. He was in the 70s in terms of the free throw percentage. He was never like in the mid 80s or anything. He was he was one who needed to produce a lot of volume to get a lot of points. And I think Barrett, in that sense, from a statistical perspective, is more so that type of player than he is like a James Harden, who will consistently have true shooting percentages of like 60 plus. Um, and you just have to factor that in in today's league as well. Like offensive efficiency has become such a huge thing, such a huge vital thing for coaches, for GMs, for just organizational structure. So you have to figure out, okay, what does he provide me offensively if he isn't going to be, you know, a uh, a dominant defender? Like, for example, Jared Culver predicts us. Like Culver himself is not necessarily a strong offensive player when it comes to the percentages, but his defensive impact and his ability to not be a high volume player kind of offsets that. So it, again, it comes down to role, right? Like what type of role is he is RJ Barrett willing to accept? What kind of role does a team have to offer him? And is it a good match with the Bulls specifically with Zach Levine, Otto Porter, Laurie Markin in there? I mean, no, I, I don't like that fit at all. No, neither. I mean, it's it's not a seamless fit. If people want to talk about, you know, Jared Culver not necessarily being the greatest fit for the Chicago Bulls, and I don't know what argument they can make for RJ Barrett being a better fit than Culver. I mean, he's a worse shooter than Jared Culver at this point. So RJ can't necessarily shoot. He wants to have the ball in his hands. He can do some things with the ball in his hands, but uh, I, yeah, I, I just don't like him at the moment. And I, I shouldn't say it that way. It's, it's not that I don't like him. It's just I don't rate him as highly as some probably do and, and and i think a lot of it's right. based on the hype in, of him coming out like cam reddish at the moment is still getting love as a top five or a top seven or eight pick and to be honest with you i didn't even notice cam reddish wasn't playing in the game yesterday <laughs> and uh, that's probably a compliment at this point because had he been playing he's probably shooting really poorly he's probably shooting 25 or 30 percent and i'm probably being critical of him right now saying how bad he was but the fact that he didn't, he didn't play I, <laughs> I didn't notice him I'm not actually going to sit here and say he did anything bad, which is kind of sad for Cam Reddish, but he's still getting by because of that hype. And I think that sort of applies for RJ Barrett too, that you know he had so much hype coming into this college season that I think he's still getting by on some of it. But at this point, I think he's a borderline top five pick. And I'd be kind of disappointed if we went through this, this ordeal of this ball season to be ending up with RJ Barrett. But look, I'm sure some people will think I'm crazy for suggesting as much. But as I say that, Jared Culver just makes a steal on the one end of the floor, goes down and hits back, hits a step back jumper. So you're not going to see yeah. RJ Barrett doing that because RJ Barrett doesn't play defense. So I don't know. Maybe I'm killing him too hard, but that's just how I feel with RJ at this point. No, I, I think it, I think that's fair. And to your point about Cam Reddish, I mean, he's been just horrible all year long. Um, you know, just not been able to shoot. And, and a lot of people are speculating that oh, he'll, he'll get that shot in and when he goes to like a further line and the court is more spaced out. And I get the thinking behind it, but I don't necessarily agree with it. I think, you know, he shies away from contact. He's just not that engaged. He's kind of overrated as a shooter. Um, I, I'm not seeing it. And it's so funny because when we came into this season, you know, with the whole, oh, Duke might have the first, second, and third pick in the draft. 
now two of the three are looking like, oh, they should probably be drafted outside the top five. Well, you can make an argument for Barry in the top five, but but Reddish, in my opinion, no, not whatsoever. Um, it's it's just it's kind of amazing how this season turned because the, everyone knew coming in that this season was not going to produce a ton of high quality NBA players. So to see them take that kind of step down and have these somewhat unknowns come out of nowhere and just exceed them is is kind of interesting to me. So. Yeah, for me, it's it's down to Morand and Culver, assuming the Bulls pick second. Now, if the Bulls pick fourth or fifth, and you know those guys are off the board, and Barrett is still there, yeah, you know, then then I'll roll the dice. I mean, I would at least consider it. I would look at the options over, you know, everywhere, of course, but I would consider it. I mean, I would trade down at that point. I, I would trade down and and trade down to ten or something like that. Maybe you deal a, do a deal with the Lakers and, you know, maybe the Lakers have pick 10. Trade, you know, from 5th to 10th, get a, a future pick and, you know, maybe try and get oh, someone I'll else. Oh, I'll do that too. So yeah, I'd, no, I'd rather that do sense. that than, than trade for, or, or, or sorry, draft RJ Barrett and try to force feed him into being something more than probably what he can be. So I don't know about that one. But I, Well, look, okay, then let me rephrase. If there's a deal to be made where you can get something that is, you know, where you can get a later pick, and additional assets, yen, then yes, absolutely agree. If the deal is there to be made, yes, agreed. Yeah, no, fair enough. But I mean, look, it's funny that we say this because by the time this podcast is up, Duke would have played Michigan State. So I'm tipping based on, on how things typically roll with me. Now that I've spent five minutes sort of trashing RJ Barrett here, that he's going to have a huge game. Duke are going to beat Michigan <laughs> State. And I'm going to look foolish. But um, we will find out in due course. But that's all about all I wanted to discuss more. Obviously, the, uh, the tournament will kick on. We'll move into Final Four next weekend, and I'm sure I'll be discussing plenty of that at that point. And we'll, hope, we'll see who's in there. Maybe, maybe Jarrett Culver and, uh, and, and Duke will be sort of playing it out next week in Final Four, and, and that'll be an interesting conversation to see how that one sort of plays out. But I appreciate you jumping on the line. Thank you for coming online. I definitely needed someone to be here with me today. I couldn't do a solo podcast today because uh, <laughs> that would have been really bad for everyone, particularly me, because <laughs> I would have been coughing all over the joint. But... Uh, Thanks for coming on and thanks for talking bulls with me. But before you go away, tell people where they can follow you online. Well, first and foremost, thank you for having me on again. It's always such a wonderful time just coming on this podcast. And by the way, you you told me before we started recording that you have a little pneumonia. I don't think there's such a thing, Mark. You have pneumonia. Like, <laughs> it's not a small thing. Um, mild and people case, can mild find case. Small, okay. okay. Well, people can find uh, me on... Uh, Twitter, of course, at MSJNBA. Uh, I run the NBA podcast um, with Brian Toporek. Uh, I think you've been on there once or twice or thrice, I think it's called. Yeah. And we'll have you back on again at at a later point. Um, and I am writing on occasion for the basketball writers, which you can find on, I think their, their URL is bballwriters.com. And starting here in... April, I'll be a contributor for Forbes Sports. Oh, cool. Nice one. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yep. That's a new thing. Very good. Pleased to hear that. So be be sure to be following Morton online and at MSJ NBA on Twitter, as well as all his work that he puts out. Follow the NBA podcast too. Subscribe to that where you can get all your good podcasts. Morton, appreciate you jumping on, my friend. Well, thank you for having me, Mark, and feel better, okay? Yeah, I'll, I'll try my best, mate. I'll, uh, maybe less Bulls games will, will help with that, I think. <laughs> Undoubtedly. (laughs) Take care, man.
All right, so that just about does it for this week's episode, Bulls fans. I appreciate you hanging in this far if you have, and and I appreciate you guys sticking along, even though my voice and the sound of my voice is not the greatest at the moment. But uh, I do appreciate you guys jumping on and listening to the show, as always. Thank you again to Morton for coming on to the show and talking Bulls. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. As always, follow the podcast online at Bulls HQ Pod on Twitter. Follow me at MK Hoops. And also follow Blue Wire Pods at Blue Wire Pods on Twitter too. You can catch out Bulls HQ, Cast Considerations, and a range of other NBA and NFL-based sports podcasts on Blue Wire Pods. So be sure to do that. I'll be back again next week, probably talking more tournament news then as well. We'll, we'll be down to four teams at that point. So we'll see how that's the results sort of transpire over the next coming days. As to who will be represented in the final four, as I mentioned before, we're watching or we're recording this during the Texas Tech versus Gonzaga game. Tomorrow, we've got Duke versus Michigan State. So a lot is still to be played out in the Elite Eight. So we'll learn more as to what the results are and we'll learn them after this podcast has been released. But I'm looking forward to seeing how the Elite Eight sort of commonizes here and who the final four will be. But we'll be talking Final Four and everything else Bulls-related on next week's episode of Bulls HQ. Be on the lookout for that in your usual spots that you download your podcast. But until then, this has been Bulls HQ. Thank you for joining me again this week, and I'll speak to you all again very soon. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.